Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Yes. This week, The Changeover by Margaret Mayhew. Yeah. Published 1984. This was such a wild ride. <laughs> I have so much to say. This is my new favorite YA supernatural paranormal romance. Oh my God. This <laughs> book is ridiculous. It's so exceptional. Yeah. And I can't believe that I've never encountered it, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if it's because it is a Kiwi author, although mm. it's very beloved in the UK as Margaret Mayhew is as well. And she is such an awarded, well-known author. Um, she's one of only seven authors to have won the Carnegie Medal two times. Two times. Two times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she's also won the Hans Christian Andersen Award. And delightfully she also she has since passed away um in 2012 that's not delightful delightfully she's <laughs> since passed away she's dead <laughs> that's not what delightfully she would always wear rainbow wigs to her readings oh. and was just just genuinely seemed to be like such a powerful joyful spirit oh i love that that's great yeah if you look at her wikipedia there's a great picture of her covered in pins wearing a rainbow Ah. wig um yeah she is she is so lovely and i'm so happy to have been introduced to her and this book was requested by many different listeners thank you all so much for bringing it to our attention i've been wanting to cover it for a while i've actually been like bullying madeline into doing changeling books books. (laughs) And this is not really a changeling book, maybe a little bit. Yeah, I mean, a case could be made for it to be classified as a changeling book because there kind of is a changeling in the book. Sorry is is more of a traditional changeling. Sorry? I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorensen? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Brutal. But then there is the titular change over, which is Laura changing states from being a a girl who's just touched by the fantastical to one who is fully a witch. Yeah, you're right. Would that we could all undergo that ritual. Yeah. I was just going to say, I didn't realize that before. That's You're right. Sorry is the changeling. Right. Yeah. So let's get into it. We do thoroughly spoil every book that we cover. So if you haven't read this one before, scamper along and check it out. Scamper, scamper. There's an audio, there is no audio book that I could find in available in the U.S. at least, but there is a widely available ebook. It's pretty easy to read. I have um, focus issues with reading and I was captivated unable to put it down honestly (laughs) yeah it's one of those for sure yeah before that madeline would you like to describe how the publisher chose to package and promote this book and i do need to say if you haven't google imaged the changeover margaret mayhem please do so right now because the sheer breadth of imagination and depiction that has gone into these editions is staggering yeah so the first edition uh which so that's from like the mid 80s um and we, this is illustrated by bruce hogarth we have bruce hogarth bruce <laughs> bruce. <laughs> bruce is not a name 
We have our heroine on the cover. Uh, I really like this depiction of her. I think that it feels pretty true to herself, um, like how she's described in the book. Uh, she's very pretty and also very like earthy and has very intense eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, like she looks very powerful and also kind of haunted, which is appropriate for this book. Um, and she has her, I forget what it's called, but the little token that she needed for like the trial when she's doing the changeover. Um, it's just like a special coin, right? In- yeah, she's she's showing it off right there. Uh, and her black um, curly, uh, what would you call it? Textured hair mm-hmm. uh, is kind of offset from the black background by this uh, glow that is um, like highlighting the edge of her hair. So she's got this kind of natural halo effect. Uh, and then we have at the top the text, Margaret Mayhe, the changeover, a supernatural romance. <laughs> yeah, that seems to have been a subtitle in a lot of earlier editions. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. I, I, I'm speechless. How is that good marketing for this book? <laughs> Especially in the like mid eighties. Like this is not from the twilight era. You no. know? Yeah. No. Yeah. This was pretty early for this, t- this type of genre work. Um, that's now absolutely ubiquitous, um, in terms of, you know, relationships between, normal-ish girls and abnormal boys <laughs> in that they're vampires, they're ghosts, what have you. Um, they're witches. Here, a, a male witch. <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time not cussing during this episode because that, like, my feelings about this book are just so, like, whoa. <laughs> well, did save it for the babe trio. <laughs> yeah. I also... But yeah, he is ridiculous. Yeah, Madeline texted me pretty early on into reading it with a uh, screenshot. I can't remember what was happening, but all she said was, he is so weird. (laughs) Yeah, because she was like, I'll make coffee. And then he's like, don't tell me where anything is. I like to look for it. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I don't want to know. (laughs) What are you doing, bro? He, yeah, we'll get into it, but he so perfectly encapsulates this, like, uh, like whimsical outsider boy mm-hmm. that was a type that I definitely gravitated toward in literature and life. Um, Did you read this when you were younger? No. Yeah, me neither. This would have been pretty dangerous for me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Agreed. No, agreed. Dangerous and also wonderful. Yep. <laughs> I wanted to mention that I do like that Laura doesn't look white on the cover because some of mm-hmm. the covers because she is half Maori and some on some of the other covers she does look a lot whiter the changeover the protagonist is Laura Chant I love their last names Chant because it makes me think of Diana Wynn Jones and Crestomancy oh yeah yeah <laughs> she is a 14 year old girl who lives in a suburb outside of Christchurch in New Zealand. And it is a sort of like when it was first developed, it sounds like it was kind of a nice place and it, it has the vibe of like an old sort of shopping mall that's that's kind of 
like fallen into dilapidation mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, it's very, I love anything that explores the horrors of the suburbs. Um, and I thought that this did a really good job of making them feel like it made sense that a sort of evil magic could creep in around the edges of something so banal. There's a special kind of despair uh, in a lot of suburb environments. Yes, I yeah. I have a <laughs> fantasy horror novel I've been working on for a long time that is set in the Chicago suburbs. So release it. I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to. I have to have more time. To write. So Laura is, she lives with her mom, Kate, and her brother, Jacko. Jacko. <laughs> Jacko, an irrepressible force. Oh my gosh. Jacko reminded me a little bit of Issa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Our nine-year-old sister. Yeah. She is, she has, you know, more on her plate than maybe the average 14-year-old. Her mom and dad are divorced and they are frequently struggling financially. Her mom works at a bookstore, and she also does a lot of caretaking of Jacko, her younger brother. Um, She also is trying to find her way at school and with boys and just generally, you know, at a transitional phase of her life. Yep, she's a teenager. She is taking Jacko to get some apple juice one day after school while her mom is finishing work. And they see a strange little shop that has been closed for a long time, but is suddenly reopened and it's full of beautiful little miniatures and just very enticing. And inside is a terrifying man named Carmody Brack. And his shop is called Brick and Brack. And he's like, I know, it's obvious. (laughs) And Laura's like, bad. (laughs) He just like kind of tumbles out there like a horrifying ghoulish presence. And it's like, oh, bad guy, bad guy, get away. (laughs) Yes. And his description is very much... um, there's something uh, rotting inside of him. Yep. Um, his skin is like falling limply off of him and his eyes are huge and watery and he is not of this earth. But unfortunately, he manages to put a stamp on Jacko's hand and the stamp looks like his messed up face and Jacko hates it and is really unhappy and soon after falls perilously ill as if his life essence is being sucked away. It's really, really frightening. He's a a pretty scary type of vampire. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks to what we do in the shadows, I think of energy vampires as so goofy. Yeah, right. Because um, of Colleen Robinson. <laughs> Colleen Robinson. Um, but they're actually very, very frightening. And, yeah. and he's something beyond that. He's, he's an immortal demon who continues to live on by sucking up others life essences he kind of reminds me of a undead from the sabriel series Mm, mm -hmm. like that kind of vibe yeah refuses to die and will do like whatever more decant yeah like will do whatever horrifying things necessary in order to cling to life for sure 
But we're not really sure of any of that yet. Laura, though, is more connected to the supernatural, the fantastical than most because she gets something that she calls her warnings, which is a premonition that something bad is going to happen. And she had a warning that morning before Jekko was stamped. So because of her warnings, which... I I loved this, that she just openly discusses them with her mom and also says that she thinks there's a boy in her school who is a witch. Yep. Um, Because I do, I I always tire and chafe a bit at books where someone's keeping this big, you know, something so obviously magical is happening, but the protagonist is like, I can't share my thoughts with anyone. They'll think I'm crazy. And it's just exhausting. Laura's just putting it out there. Laura is so straight about all of this. No one believes her. I love it. Well, her mom does. I I love the way they talk to each other because her mom does engage with her on it. Um, Right. It's not just her being like, shut up, Laura, you're crazy. Quiet. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, but, But, you know, she's not putting any stock in it. But that boy who Laura thinks is a witch is one who she thinks she should seek out in order to try to figure out what to do. Because it's obvious, even though Jacko is in the hospital and is being treated by doctors, they're all saying, we don't know what's wrong with him. He's just dying. And it's clear that something more supernatural is at play. It's a magical ailment, not a medical one. So the doctors are useless. Laura seeks out this witch boy from school who is a prefect. Um, Shout out to the day one listeners. I really pushed for a segment called Are There Prefects in the Podcast? Soon became clear that that was a quick yes or no answer. Oh, I forgot about that. Not worth investigating further. But for any book set in the UK or now New Zealand, there typically would be a prefect if it was school age protagonists um and as someone from the u.s that's just fascinating to me yeah because prefects are just like student narcs Mm -hmm. it's like hall monitors kind of yeah they're well and they get better things like they get the fancy they have their own room room and like robes yeah oh my gosh well this this prefect sorry Sorensen carlisle who goes by sorry um, he, he's definitely got more of a flair for dr- the dramatic than the average prefect. So maybe all the dressing gowns are <laughs> his own invention just for him. <laughs> yeah. Not a requirement. Laura uh, amazingly just goes to his house, <laughs> like just finds it and walks there after she tells her mom, she's going next door to watch TV with her friend. And it's in a terrifying part of town. Yeah, there's... It gets very dark all of a sudden. Right, yeah, there's this description of how in this part of town um, someone was murdered recently, a, another young girl was raped, yep. um, just like not a part that you want to be walking around in, and this is where the like inherent danger of the suburbs kind of starts creeping in. It's very eerie, mm-hmm. and it really builds, so I did enjoy that. She shows up at Soria's house, and then we get treated to this absolute goof. He is in a dressing gown. He is in a study that is filled with romance novels, but then also has a picture of a naked woman with Laura's little face taped onto it. <laughs> uh. 
Which honestly, I, I could buy for a, what, 17, 18-year-old boy. No, totally. And the, the way that Margaret Mayhew... Not, not maybe the romance novels, but the naked woman poster with the picture of the girl he likes pinned to it. <laughs> the way that Margaret Mayhew develops her characters is really special because... They're so specific, and yet they all feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like people that you've known before. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, I've, I've never known an 18-year-old Kiwi prefect who loves romance novels and is a witch. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wish I did. Anyways, heavy emotional problem. <laughs> a severe drama that he's barely repressing. Yeah. Just below the surface. So anyway, Sori is immediately like, hmm, you came here to make out with me, right? <laughs> In front of his mom. In front of his- <laughs> he tells Laura she has sexy legs in front of his mother in the hallway of his house. And his mother's like, sigh. <laughs> She's just like, <laughs> heavy sigh. <laughs> what do I, how do I deal with you? This is my son. <laughs> because he didn't, I mean, to be fair, he didn't grow up as her son. He met her like a few years back. Yes, he, he has an interesting history. We, we learn pretty quickly because the events of this book take place just over a few days until the very ending, um, which is a sort of epilogue uh, because Jacko's illness progresses so rapidly. We learn that Sori was had by his mother because she and her mother needed a third witch to round out their family coven um, the immediate danger was that they were going to lose the family farm and they needed a triangle of power in order to retain it. They don't really go into details how. But um, it's, it's like a maiden mother crone type deal. Exactly. So she has a child that they, in their family, they like pretty much only have girls. They know what's coming. And then uh, Sori is born. And she is like, you're not a girl. So she adopts him out. Yeah, she like rejects him. And he goes to grow up with a totally different family and is with them until he's like 15 or 16. He's 15, I think, um, when his father loses his job and becomes horribly abusive and is kind of drawn to the fact and made angry by the fact that Sori is a witch, is magical, is different, um, that there's something about him. So he runs away, finds his actual mom, who is then like, oh, I see that you can be our maiden after all, and also you need a home. So yeah, she showed up like covered in the signs of terrifying, like serial killer abuse. level abuse. Yeah. And so they make a sort of odd little family. His mother later calls them a formal family rather than a loving one. Um, and that passage is really interesting. I want to talk more about the, the different family dynamics on display in New Impressions. But Sori is... On a level with Laura, he's like, okay, number one, I want to date you. Number two, yeah, something magical is happening to your brother, and maybe we can help. They realize that what has to happen after talking to 
Sori's mother and grandmother, whose name is Winter and who is amazing. And when I become an old woman, I am going to change my name to Winter. (laughs) Winter Harnoy. Because she's in the winter of her life, so it, it matches, too. That's right. And Laura spends some time with, sorry, his mother and grandmother, and they decide that the only way that she can regain power over Carmody and save Jacko is for her to step out of her human self and fully become a witch. And they believe this is possible because Laura is already open to that through the ability to have her warnings and the way that she was able to recognize Sori as a witch. She clearly already has this capacity within her. So they're just going to move her fully into it and she will become a witch. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of hard to explain. No, no, it's like she needs to unlock her potential and there's like a process that she has to go through in order to do that. But it's like a big choice because she can't go back and it's going to like... It's very dangerous mm -hmm. and if she doesn't succeed, she'll die. Yeah, but I mean, I know what I would choose. (laughs) I mean, we're here on our fantasy (laughs) podcast, so I think everyone knows our answer. Which way we'd go on this. Would you put a drop of your blood in a goblet of wine, drink it, and then trip so hard that you can't believe what just happened? Yes. Yeah, because that's what proceeds to go down. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, amazing. This chapter, oh my God, this chapter, it's so well written. It's It's so scary. It's so fulfilling. It, I feel like every, every person should read this. And there's, it's also imbued with such a, the power of the feminine. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that. And she becomes a a woman of the moon. That's what they call witches. Um, By, like I mentioned, having her little potion, putting on a white nighty, (laughs) taking a bath. (laughs) You know. And then wandering through like an alternate heaven and hell scape filled with terrifying beings and also beautiful ones and characters from different fairy tales and Sori's there and he like kisses her and gives her a sword anyway she succeeds and she becomes a witch and then immediately puts her power into a mark which she can lay on Carmody in order to reverse these tides and her mark is a little happy face stamp, yeah. which made me so That's glad. so cute. And I want a happy face stamp that I will stamp on people and say, I will crush you between my smiles, because that's what Laura says when she's talking about it. I'm going to start doing that at work. <laughs> crush you between my smiles. That's pissing me off. Stamp. <laughs> it feels very Bjorky, which I really like. <laughs> I will crush you between my smiles. <laughs> Laura heads out to get Carmody. She and Sori head over to his 
creepy house where he is trying to make it look like everything's perfect and wonderful, but he's made some mistakes because, for example, there are roses blooming and they're like, that takes place seven months from now. But he's out there tottering around his garden being like, tee hee hee. And he's. I murdered a little boy. (laughs) I love killing little boys. (laughs) And he's clearly full of Jacko's essence. He looks a lot better than he did in the shop and is just like vibrant and very happy. But Laura manages to get in and talk to him by tricking him into thinking that she's there to give him her life essence in exchange for Jacko's. But then she takes off her sunglasses and takes out her stamp and he's like, oh, witch. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't recognize her and he was busy doing some very creepy monologuing. So she manages to put her stamp on him. And from that point on, he is ruined. He loses all of his essence and Jacko gains it back and wakes up in the hospital. He's okay. Laura has called him back to their side through some mental plane travel and communication. And by the way, her mom's new boyfriend's there too. I didn't even talk about Chris. I mean, Chris is whatever. He's fine. Yeah, no, no, I know. But I, I, yeah, there's there's a whole parallel storyline where her mom is also dealing with Jacko's illness in a different way. Um, and is like finding companionship, true companionship for the first time in the form of a man named Chris Holly, who is described in such a weird way yep. as balding, but with long hair, <laughs> which it's, I was like, what? Yeah, no, he's rocking one of those like bald on top, <laughs> long ponytails. <laughs> but he's very smart and funny and sweet and loves books. Yeah. So, you know, sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, he's, he's chill. And he's been helping throughout. So by the end of the book, Jacko is saved. Carmody has withered away literally into a pile of dead leaves and a suit. And Sori and Laura have become sort of boyfriend and girlfriend. But in the end, it's time for Sori to go away on an elite conservation fellowship. I love that he's an environmentalist. Really into birds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, you know, I think we should pause this relationship. Our age gap is too big. He's 18 at this point and Laura is almost 15. And also you're in high school and, you know, a fresh witch. (laughs) So like... I'm going to go away and do this and, you know, maybe someday we can uh, make this work, but it's all too serious for right now. We're kids. And Laura's like, sigh. Okay. And that's, that's it. That's, that's the end of the book. And there's not like sequels? No. No. So yeah, that's the changeover. I I skipped some bigger things, but we're going to talk about them now. (laughs) So we haven't read this book before. So glad to have read it. I think it functions really fascinatingly well as an adult read. Mm -hmm. It is also more firmly YA than a lot of the books we've covered because it really specifically deals with coming of age, um, sexual maturity, uh, puberty, 
um, the kind of things, you know, it has the touches of like a Judy Bloom sort of YA book and that it's very concerned with like understanding, like beginning to understand your sexual self and like what you're interested in romantically. Um, but it does it within this really fascinating fantasy environment that is also so urban. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it was really interesting to be set in a magical cityscape um, and everything that goes along with that instead of a more countryside, mountainside, like traditionally British setting for like a YA or children's fantasy book yeah, like um, where we got people like on the moors and in castles yeah. um, and, you know, really grappling with the power of nature in that way. Mm -hmm. And I loved seeing the way that nature exists within this, you know, gross subdivision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the fact that when... Laura is having her final showdown with Carmody. She takes him to this like dead field behind a graveyard. Yep. <laughs> and is like, this seems good. Yep. And Sori later is like, there are girls like practicing gymnastics over there. <laughs> like, there's people everywhere. There's like a drunk man leaning against a tree. <laughs> and she's just like, this is our town, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the way that it was populated with all of the other denizens of Gardendale, that's what their town is called, um, I thought was really, really interesting and different. And also there's that extra fun vibe with urban fantasy where it feels more accessible. Um, it feels more like we can just step, you know, turn around a corner and step into a similar story. Mm. Okay. Um, that this could happen to us. And, you know, maybe it's different for people who were raised or grew up in rural areas. I don't know. <laughs> um, I couldn't, couldn't say. Um, but I think it's also more challenging to write this type of fantasy where you don't have the easy go-to of like a foreboding forest or a mysterious mountain or like an ocean that possibly contains a sea creature. You know what I mean? Instead, we have like these looming old buildings and like the tattered men <laughs> that kind of hide around the corners. And then the the one fancy house, which is where Sori and his mom and grandmother live, which adds like a touch of the regal um, but it's set against this very different backdrop. Yeah, I uh, I usually prefer uh, remote, not even necessarily country, like just totally alternate reality um, fantasy because then, because I prefer the most like escapism possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not to say that I don't love finding magic in everyday life, but it just like, it kind of breaks my immersion and it, like reminds me of stuff that I don't care about. Mm. Um, but I did not have that, that problem with this book, maybe because it is still like a pretty foreign environment to me Yeah, because it takes place in New Zealand. So even the school stuff didn't like really mm -hmm. rub me the wrong way. Um, cause I really don't like yeah, Madeline being doesn't reminded like of school, high school settings. Um, 
because, you know, there are prefects. Like, it's a pretend world Are there prefects? (laughs) Yes. Thumbs up. Yeah. Thumbs up for prefects. Um, And, but I still... I was thinking of this. I it's interesting that even though it takes place in New Zealand, it's so accessible. Um, like there's a few things that are like, oh, New Zealand, but more so I got a, a lot of, oh, 80s, um, when like something would happen or someone would say something and it'd be like, that's weird. And then be like, oh right, this book came out in 1984. That's so funny. I had a really different experience. I thought it felt distinctly not very 80s. Mm. And I was actually I I tried, I I kept wanting to look at what year it was published because I hadn't really noticed yet. And then I was like, no, I think it's actually more interesting to kind of explore it from this perspective of could kind of be like any time. But I also think that Margaret Mahie, um, the way she writes dialogue, she doesn't really use like slang and people speak. Yeah, no, that's not what made me think of the 80s. um, These more uh, like, personal and sometimes poetic ways there's lots of like literary references um definitely a little a touch of the you know children talking like adults at least in sorry um laura i think had like a pretty true you know 14 year old psyche and dialogue um but i actually i didn't find it feeling super 80s was there anything in particular that comes to mind um like one thing is the dilapidated mall (laughs) No, like, they just made a couple of, like, cultural references, like, someone made a joke about sexism in a way that was very, like, mm-hmm. oh, you've been reading, like, such and such. Okay. Like, as if that's, like, kind of a new thing mm-hmm. that people are actually, like, dealing with and talking with. Okay. Um, and then the fact that uh, they don't have a phone. <laughs> the phone thing was, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> they just they couldn't pay the phone bill regularly, so that yeah, they were like, so they, just they are not on the phone. That, yeah, we are not on the phone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you cannot reach us that way. That was which also funny. makes it a lot more challenging when you're dealing with medical emergencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it it wasn't like overbearing. I just it was nice that the New Zealand thing just made it feel more like a pretend world without being too like intrusive, I think. Yeah. No, I I loved the New Zealand setting mm-hmm. and I liked how clear it was because I was really curious if this was going to feel like a an English YA fantasy book, mm. um, which, you know, I've read so many of. Um, and I, I think, I mean, this is maybe the first YA fantasy by a Kiwi author that I've read. We've read a lot by Australians, but that's a different thing. Yeah, I think um, so. And it was so, and I have been to New Zealand and I have been to Christchurch, but when I, I was there in 2012, so it was only like a year and a half after the earthquakes. Um, so there wasn't, you couldn't really like go to Christchurch. Like they were oh. just working on um, surviving and rebuilding. Um, and interestingly, there, there was a film adaptation of this made that um came out in 2016 really um, or that came out in 2017 shot in Christchurch in 2016 and it's all New Zealand actors Melanie Linsky is in it my 
my babe, my <laughs> number one. Um, and it really emphasized the like ruined component of the city and huh. the way that a lot of it, you know, even at that point, five years later was still rubble. Um, and, people trying to function in what way that they could. Um, so that's a really interesting backdrop, I think, for yeah. this story. And I think it already, as I've said a few times, it already has like a dilapidated planned community vibe throughout, which is so ominous. Um, and it makes sense that there would be a creature like Carmody Breck lurking there. Okay. That's a good point. Yeah, no, he did really fit the setting. Yeah. Like it seemed like a believable place that he would choose to natural. Yeah. I also love the way that different family structures are portrayed in the book. Um, Kate and Laura and Jacko are a really sweet trio. Yeah. And we have an absentee dad who shows up a little bit, sends money a little bit, but... He doesn't send enough money. No, and is mostly interested in creating a new life with his new girlfriend who is pregnant also. Um, And there is that tension between that and Laura feeling like you know, she and Jacko should be everything that her mom needs and being resentful of her mom meeting Chris Holly, the Canadian. <laughs> There's one point at which, like, someone in, insults him, basically, by saying he's American, and then her mom is like, he's not American, he's Canadian. He's Canadian. And, and I like, was like, you tell him. Like, yeah, well, feel that one. <laughs> Laura says, by way of explaining it, Canadians are Americans without Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) Really funny stuff. Uh, Um, Yeah, so thanks, Chris. We've got our um, North American contingent (laughs) really wrapping. (laughs) And we we all have long hair but are also bald, so (laughs) think about that. Under our wigs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Grace, shh! <laughs> I'm shattering conspiracies everywhere. <laughs> and so she has this function of kind of serving as a partner to her mom um more in the beginning of the book and she she wants to be that way. Um she she wants them to you know the three of them to be able to be this this unit um but it's not appropriate for her to serve as her mom's partner she mm-hmm. is her daughter um and i appreciated more as we move through the book and there's a scene where laura gets very upset because she sees chris in his bathrobe at her house in the morning when she um, wasn't told that they were home well, she wasn't supposed to be there. This is when she's supposed to be staying with Sori mm-hmm. and his mom and grandmother because Kate is just at the hospital with Jacko. Yeah. Um, but they stop by to get something and she and Sori see him in his <laughs> bathrobe. And it, it was really funny because that moment is treated with such horror that I thought at first that something happened that showed that Chris was like evil. Well, because it said he was wearing her bathrobe. So my brain was like, he killed her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's still... 
because that, like I said, that terror is very so present ominous. in that moment. Because yeah. Laura's like, ah! <laughs> it's just the scream of knowing that your mom had sex. Yeah. With this guy that you can't even decide if you like. Yeah. <laughs> and that was so funny and, like, really well done. Um, and, you know, as... Uh, children of divorce like I always appreciate um divorce depictions and just like the awkwardness of moving forward with you know a parent that like has a new thing going on and a parent who maybe doesn't have a new thing going on like Kate and her dad Mm -hmm. like Laura's parents yeah um yeah because one parent is like raising the kids exactly (laughs) yeah 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 the other just is going and having another kid yeah anyway enough about us (laughs) no we're good (laughs) we're fine (laughs) but being in that moment when you're 14 and then also for Laura She's she's like coming of age just as her own self. I mean, she's entering adolescence and kind of in the most challenging part of it. She is also trying to help her mom and take care of her little brother. She also has very real awareness of, like I mentioned, their financial struggles, um, which is a big stressor for a kid to be mm-hmm. aware of that. Um And she's trying to also balance, like, the way she talks to her mom is so intentional because there are moments where we, you know, because we have her first-person perspective and we're hearing her say, like, that she wants to, like, hurt her mom's feelings a little bit or that she's trying to, like, rebel a little and be, like, a little bratty and teeny. Mm -hmm. But then she also really loves and cares about her mom and also really doesn't want to make her feel bad. And she's constantly walking that line in a really beautiful way, especially as Chris starts spending more time at the house and Laura's, like, deciding how mean to be Mm -hmm. (laughs) to him. Yeah. I thought that was all just, like, so well-written. She's very, like, thoughtful about it, Mm -hmm. like, not necessarily reactive. Like, she... She really thinks through all of it, which was refreshing because a lot of times in here, like, you just have the child, like, being really mean and then the adult not knowing how to handle it. And, and, like, it's Mm -hmm. kind of predictable. But I thought that this was, like, pretty nice. There's also the sort of trope, um, I'll call it the little women trope of the poorer family having the richer life. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, they're... You know, they have no choice but to, like, band together and love. And they are the ones who are really having fun, whereas the Carlisles are, like, living in their cold, fancy house, um, like, plotting their long-term witchcraft. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're not having fish and chip night every Thursday. That's true. They're they're having, like, normal dinners. I will talk about this in Pretend Food, but the differences in what Laura eats at her house and at the Carlisles um, are very... Very stark. Yeah. Uh, very defining in terms of like the class tension <laughs> between those two homes. Um, and then I also really like having a working mom mm-hmm. and the very real and important concern paid to like everyone's schedules each day because 
Laura can't just like run off with a friend after school. You know, she has to go to Jacko's babysitter and pick him up Mm -hmm. and then take him to get some apple juice and then check on Kate. And then she's going to pick up the fish and chips for dinner and then they'll all go home and eat. But it's like, it's so, it's so important. And you do have to keep those things in mind when you're like a child taking care of another child. Yeah. I appreciated that too. Like showing how they had to like be careful and there's like a specialness in that normalcy. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I'm getting at in the, the little women trope that I just named. I've never read little women. Um, well, it's amazing. Damn it. All right. <laughs> now, now who cussed? Wrapping up the family discussion, the, the line I mentioned earlier that Soria's mother says is we are a fond family rather than a loving one. So consideration is doubly important. We can't afford to abandon it as loving families may choose to do out of confidence in themselves, which is so well said because it's like, they'll love you no matter what, but like we don't really love each other. So we need to maintain some mutual respect. Yeah. We're just kind (laughs) of like bound together by circumstance. Exactly. So yeah, with Laura, we get like the fun, messy, like, Ooh, do we have enough money for fish and chip dinner? Like can't use the phone, but we're all here together and we're cracking jokes and love and life versus the cold quiet of the the sorry home next thing i want to talk about is magic systems because the magic in this book is very 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 fascinating to me it's pretty cool yeah it feels very um i mean it's very uh wiccan Mm-hmm. Uh, like heavily influenced by that, especially because like you have a lot of influences in like the elemental stuff mm-hmm. or the, they call them moon daughters mm-hmm. or whatever, because the moon is um, feminine. And on that note, I really, it's super, super interesting. Uh, the gender stuff involved yeah. in Sori's character. I have a quote for this actually. Um, can I say it quickly? No. (laughs) (laughs) So sorry, sorry's mom is talking and he says, sometimes I think all women are imaginary creatures as sorry chooses to put it. He doesn't mean that we're simply imagined, you know, but that our power flows out of the imagination. And that's the faculty that makes magicians of all of us, witches just act upon it with such conviction that their dreams turn into reality. That's pretty cool. Please continue. That's a good quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, the writing is so unbelievable. She is so talented. Because, like, Sori has to grapple with the fact that he is a man or, like, yeah. growing he's into second one. tier. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's not a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so he has, but, like, he has this very strong, like, he's very powerful feminine magic mm-hmm. Uh, which he kind of has to grapple with, like, mm-hmm. his masculinity and femininity, which is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. And for, like, a book written in 1984, I thought was, like, very interesting as well. Yeah, I really appreciated People the- were not comfortable talking about, totally. like, that kind of, like, mixing and figuring out gender. Just, like, moving beyond the gender binary in any exactly. way. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and in terms of, like, not just presentation, but, like, your internal life as well and the mm-hmm. way that um I think it's so interesting that Sori is obsessed with romance novels yeah. um like we've said and it's like he, I, he cites that as him like trying to understand human emotion mm-hmm. a little bit better yeah and also like I think 
then also imagine his future in which he could have one of these types of romances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think it is him trying to learn how to like take care of a partner, um, you know, both like emotionally and sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also still has this like dumb frat boy thing of like a poster of a naked lady <laughs> with Laura's picture on it. So <laughs> Which I thought is that was not romantic. So funny. <laughs> or like he's trying to get into the mindset of women and the way that they function and what is going to be like romantic and mm-hmm. sexually appealing to them. Yeah. And then he's like, Naked lady, don't mind if yeah. I do. <laughs> it's pleasures. like, yep, he's still a teenage boy. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. there's just so much, fa- yeah, fascinating, so many fascinating dualities within mm-hmm. within story. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and his magic is part of that. And I think he very, I do think he has like a sensitivity to how, like you were saying, feminine, all of their like symbols and rituals are Mm -hmm. and like the way that they proceed, like the changeover itself is so like, (laughs) I don't know, like Enya coded. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Put oh my your, god! Put on your white silk nightgown. You're totally right. After you've come out of your candle-surrounded bath with your chalice, and then you like enter into this magical land, it's like, like ephemeral voices, mm-hmm. like singing beautiful sounds. They definitely <laughs> mentioned like some unicorns going by yeah, at one point. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then Sori is so he has to function within that, and in fact, he's mm-hmm. like lesser because he can't really provide that like yeah. he will never be a woman yeah um and he doesn't want to be like right. that's that's not part of his character no no but it like he has like i said that duality in him that he's like grappling with mm-hmm. um and it, so something else i really love about story is that he expresses that when he's in his study he is like truly himself yeah. he's powerful yeah. and like he wears all his jewelry and his like dramatic dressing gown i wouldn't be surprised Hands covered in rings yeah they're, covered. that's how they're described covered i wouldn't be surprised if he's got like some mascara and eyeliner on oh, for sure <laughs> for sure and i relate so hard to that because i like wherever i live I create a like haven for myself. Like if you follow me on Instagram, pig and doodles uh, is my handle. P I G letter N D O O D L E S. I really like the idea of showing off one's haven on Instagram. It it feels good. A new like hashtag haven with me. Yes. Yes. Because I just love like, you know, sharing little glimpses of that space because it's so like special and magical. And I, like do really feel safe there I feel like myself I'm surrounded by all my like tchotchkes from occult to fandom (laughs) (laughs) pictures of Astarian and Mm -hmm. I do feel like very safe there and like I can like it is truly just like where I'm myself um so that really really resonated with me because like when I go out into the world I'm very careful about how I style myself to like make me feel powerful and like ready uh but I don't really truly feel like I can have my own like I'm my most powerful self when I'm in my Mm -hmm. safe space you know what I mean 
Totally. Yeah. Lately, I've been so happy that the um, the meme of uh, I I don't wish to be perceived has yes. really uh, risen. Dude, I feel like that so often. Uh, I would. The, uh, the first time I saw one, I was like, "Yes." <laughs> Do not perceive me the way that sometimes I am out in the world just so I can have my my little walk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, you better not look at me. <laughs> don't. Don't you look at me Notice in the eyes. Me. <laughs> don't notice me. Yeah. Much less interact. <laughs> like, I don't even want eye contact. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, relate. Yeah. Like, as I'm walking <laughs> and I accidentally make eye contact with the person standing in front of me with their hand up, clearly wanting to talk to me in my head, I was just like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> Thinking about turning around and running away. <laughs> It always makes me think of being in high school again, like going down a hall, like between classes, like if I was mm. going to the bathroom or something or like during a free period and there'd be like one person that enters the hall and is coming down opposite. You can see them like, all the no! way down there. Yeah. How long must I live in this hell? Start jabbing my eyes out. <laughs> I just crumple to the ground. <laughs> As if I too have been turned into dead leaves. But yeah, I, I just, you know, obviously I related to Laura or maybe not obviously, but I, I feel like it's kind of clear the reasons I would, but I almost feel like I related more to Sorry, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> which is very funny, but I think a testament to like how well-written his character is. For sure. He, he feels so much like a real person while also being so bizarre. Yep. And we also both talked a little bit um, before the episode about he how he also has some, like, potential signifiers of being neurodivergent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, resonates with both of us yep. as well. <laughs> that's, that's part of it. <laughs> and, but, you know, there is the... There's the difficulty there of like what is who he actually is and what is his trauma response mm-hmm. um, because he has chosen to eschew emotions after his difficulty with his previous family who was kind of like his real family because he grew up with them. Yeah, but then they um, like turned on him and attacked him and violently. And there are really sad moments where he's like, my other mother, I really miss her. Mm-hmm. And like, she was really lovely, but she clearly doesn't care to like seek him out. Like reach out yeah. There's a, yeah. It's, it's very eerie early on when he mentions something like, yeah, I had two brothers once. I don't know where they are now. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? Yeah. They like completely rejected <laughs> what him. What happened to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, his he's... dad was literally imprisoning him in a cabinet yeah. when he escaped. Like so torture like, stuff. The rest of the family had to be aware mm-hmm. of what was going on and permitting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but magic. <laughs> but yeah, so Sori is like dissociating pretty hard yeah. uh, for a lot of his life now. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, but yeah, just uh, what what a complex boy. Yeah. I, yeah, one reason it's good that I didn't read this when I was young is that maybe I would seek out someone like him. Yeah, exactly. That's why I said it's dangerous. I don't think he's a healthy person to be in a relationship with 
Um, okay, Especially but- because certain extenuating circumstances that make his behavior more acceptable or more palatable are yeah. like don't exist in real life. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, just give me a, a witch boy. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that's all we want. Yep. Um, okay, just to wrap up magic, then we have to talk about romantic realism, which mm-hmm. we are heading right into anyway. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to. Those are my story impressions. <laughs> yes. Good. 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 <laughs> The magic, I keep using the word specific, but I think that's just a testament to Margaret Mayhew's talent um, in that she can create a magic system that feels like it has definitive rules, but can also access the transcendent Mm -hmm. and the sublime Mm -hmm. and be able to exist in an intangible way. Like there's just such an impressive mix of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, her writing's really cool. And it's magic is also very linked to emotion and perception. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted to read this little little passage from the beginning of the book and it's when Laura is going into school after her warning the day that Jacko gets stamped and it, it ties into the story too Laura and Sorensen looked at each other now smiling but not in friendship they smiled out of cunning and shared secret flicked from eye to eye Laura walked past him in the school gates bravely turning right into the mouth of the day right into its open jaws which she must enter despite all warnings She felt the jaws snap down behind her and knew she had been swallowed up. The day spread its strangeness before her resigned eyes, its horror growing thin and wispy as it sank away. The flow came back into the world once more, and the warning became a memory, eagerly forgotten because it was useless to remember it. The warning had come. She had ignored it. There was nothing more to be said. When I first read that, I was like, how are you able to articulate this? Like it was Mm -hmm. so, I just found it so impressive because this is about magic because it is about Laura's knowledge, like foreknowledge that something evil is coming. It's also emotional. Sounds like horrible anxiety. And it reminds me how I felt going into high school every day. Totally. (laughs) She's also having the electricity of a crush and making eye contact with her crush, but then also knowing that he is something other than fully normally human Mm -hmm. um, and like recognizing his witchcraft. (laughs) So it's just like so potent. Yeah. There is so much happening there and it, and yet it all feels, yeah, it's so charged. It's so like perfectly a 14 year old walking into school, like just just incredible it is yeah it's good stuff and I really also loved when she is heading into her changeover ceremony I think winter says don't worry it's only a little nature magic a sprinkle of cinnamon an orange stuck with cloves the blood of grapes the juice of a girl it will just start you on your journey so drink it slowly and make yourself into a woman of the moon and I was just like girls night anybody (laughs) Let's get it going. Mm. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Yeah, it does. And we'll all take a bath together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <sighs> yep. So the way that she manages to combine imagination with reality, I I just felt was was pretty exceptional. Reminded yeah. me of Diana Wynne Jones too. It also reminded um, me of 
a lot of crossover with her more Diana. like urban fantasies yeah. um, where yeah. the, the real is smashing up against the imagined. Smashing. <laughs> smashing. <laughs> Sorry. Nigel Thornberry. <laughs> I have to when I hear that word. Talk about deep cuts. <laughs> All right, romantic realism. I, I need to begin with a quote. What advantages? She yelled at him. Come on, what advantages? You want to make out? All right, then. It doesn't take long, does it? And then you can just shut up about it. It'll be over and done with. Yelling at him about kissing. Because that's when he says, I'm beginning to think I have all the disadvantages of a marriage without the advantages. Because <laughs> He's just like helping her and she's annoying him. Such a jerk. Oh my God. I thought it was really interesting in reading um, some other people's experiences with this book that pretty much everyone who read it when they were young said that they found it like very sexy. Um, I think. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. I found it sexy. <laughs> And I, felt weird about it. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that the the issue of like questionable consent is just like very present throughout mm-hmm. the book. Um, because Sori and Laura are physical with each other. They don't have sex, but they kiss, and then in truly one of the strangest moments I've ever read, he just like gets closer and closer to her and then just wordlessly puts his hand on her boob while like staring at her. And Laura's just like, okay. What's happening? Okay. Um, <laughs> haven't, haven't many of us been in that kind of encounter as young people? It's something, perhaps not that itself, but akin to that has happened. And it's just like, right. All right. No, and it also feels like one of those things where it's like, oh, did you have to write it down? <laughs> like, this should be a horrible secret I don't have to witness. <laughs> like, I love how much awkwardness there is between the two of them and their physical relationship. Yeah. Because it makes sense. Like, it's they're very young, believable. they're inexperienced. Sorry, I think, has never had a, a, like, girl in his life. I think he's just read all his romance novels. Yeah. And he wants to have the air that he's, like, experienced, but he's so obviously not. Yeah, no, he's literally just writing on, like, what he knows from his romance novels. <laughs> he's, like, with a dressing gown and a little bit of confidence. Yep, and yep. a bunch of rings. Going forward. I can be a hottie that everybody wants. Well, he doesn't want everyone to want him. He wants Laura to want him. He has it bad for her. Yeah. In a way that I, oh my God, I almost died when she realized she, that he had a picture of her up on his wall. I was like... If there were any chance of that person ever knowing that that existed, I I would put that in like a safe inside of a safe in the back of my closet with like traps <laughs> laid with around traps. <laughs> Never, ever, ever, ever. And instead he's so like, yeah, I got a picture of you taped to a naked lady poster. What of it? Like, who is this person? He's so confident. It really is. (laughs) But even though he also has a horrible stammer that that comes out in moments of 
like trauma mm-hmm. reliving yeah. and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again makes him relatable. I know, I know. And I like how Laura is really not um, like she's definitely confused by him. But she's not, like, instantly, like, smitten. She's not overcome. For sure. Like, she sees him, uh, which is great. There's so much that is a bit Edward and Bella-y about their relationship, um, but without all of the obnoxious fake trappings that come with the Twilight, the central Twilight romantic relationship, um, I don't know why I'm talking about Twilight. I did not think about Twilight but while I was reading this. It's but actually I, I really I similar. Kind of, I kind of understand what and you're talking like, about. And it's like, she's like, quote unquote, normal girl, but there's something that makes her like a little more ready to acknowledge that there are like other creatures mm-hmm. among us. He's like a very mysterious boy who has had a perplexing life that she can't know and he's obsessed with her yeah yeah I I guess the main difference is that they're well-written characters of course no I'm not (laughs) actually comparing it to Twilight but the reason I'm mentioning this is because Twilight ripped it off well I think today these types of YA supernatural romances are written so much more clunkily and there isn't this level of, you know, she's like not that sure about him. Mm-hmm. She definitely yeah. is intrigued by him in the way that like, you know, you're like there's this one like really hot senior at your high school. You're a freshman and you're like, oh, that guy, he's a prefect. <laughs> We've all been there. Prefect. <laughs> And he has silver eyes. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Come on. I mean, yeah, obviously magical creature. And like, even though clearly at school, he's doing his best to kind of hide this piece of himself. It's also like the world, you know, everyone in town knows that he like is obsessed with birds and Mm -hmm. goes around taking pictures of them. Like little binoculars, which he also (laughs) uses to like try to peep into people's houses. Um, Yeah. Weirdo. (laughs) So Laura is not immediately like, Oh, I'm so drawn to him. He's so hot. In fact, she's very annoyed because understandably her brother is dying in the hospital. And he's like, will you, she's like, will you help me? I need, you're the only person I know who can figure out this magical cause of his illness. And then Sori's like, sexy legs. (laughs) And he's just really mad at her that she came to his house and doesn't want, she's not there to make out with him. (laughs) He, when she first got there, was like, oh my God, all my dreams are coming true. My crush has just arrived at my door. (laughs) So I guess we're going to hook up now. And then she's like, my brother's dying. And he's so pissed. (laughs) And the, the way that we get these peeks into these little internal moments, like... Like I said earlier, the kind of stuff that I feel like isn't often written down because it's like so private that you're like embarrassed that it even happened mm-hmm. to you. You know, yeah. when you're like embarrassed something happened to you, even though no one else even like witnessed it or knows. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yep. It's like too much shame for you to ever possibly share it with the world. I feel like this book is just filled with moments like that. Or like when it's a good point. So I thought it was so funny that during Laura's changeover procedure <laughs> during that trip, 
he kisses her and it's like really hot. Mm -hmm. And the two of them have like a hot kiss. Then at the end, after she makes her mark on the stamp, his mom and grandmother kiss her on each cheek. And then Zoe's like, now time for my kiss. And he gives her what she describes as a heavy and inexperienced kiss that reminds her of her little brother, her three-year-old brother kissing her. And I was like, okay, well, that's an immediate ick. And I don't know how you could go on with this person. (laughs) You know, there are like some things that like, if it even happened once, you're just like, Okay, all my attraction has died. Fled my body. (laughs) Yeah, I cannot possibly touch you again. Um, But that too felt like such an intimate little moment where you would like have that experience of someone and then got to put it to paper and to realize it is just incredible. I I love her writing so much. I am definitely going to seek out her other work. Are they supernatural romances? Um, I don't know. <laughs> if they're not, I'm not interested <laughs> to find out. That's all I read now. Well, but then, and then that's the, that's the other part that's like a little difficult about the consent question is like, he's like touching her and kissing her a lot. And from Laura's perspective, she's like figuring out if she likes him or not. She's definitely like having a good time. Yeah. She's not like bothered by him and her body is at least responding even if her brain is not so like you know that's different from yeah not consenting but but still like there's just like a line that I feel like was kind of crossed at times and also like at the end when he's explicitly like I can't hang out with you anymore because I want to go to bed with you and it's not legal (laughs) that's when I was like Aye. All right. Okay. Let's shut get, it down. Let's get you off to your bird watching <laughs> trip. Just get Come on. back in like four years. <laughs> yeah. So troubling. Um, but I, I did appreciate that Margaret Mayhew very explicitly was like, they did not have sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Good. I would be very concerned. Then I also just want to mention that I did like Kate and Chris Holly's relationship. Kate is such a sweetie. She's a very good mom. She loves her kids so much. She works so hard. Give her a long-haired bald man to (laughs) hook up with, you know? And I thought it was so wise and special to have in a children's book something like this where the parent's partner is not being painted as you know a superficial like I don't like this boyfriend and you know they're trying to charm me but I resist it Mm -hmm. instead there's actually a really empathetic understanding of you know Laura's so hurt that Kate hooked up while her brother's in the hospital and Kate is like I just needed to be distracted I needed to like feel something else other than this overwhelming pain and you know like being with Chris gave me that and sometimes the thing about sex is that it actually like takes you out of your mind in a way Mm -hmm. and then you can just like exist in that moment and then you get to have this brief reprieve from like the horrors of life yeah um and I thought that was really compelling and reading it as an adult I just felt for Kate throughout 
Like I, yeah. Jacko is so young. He's only three. Yeah. Um, interestingly in the film adaptation, they made Jacko and Laura each two years older. Um, because I think it's just like too upsetting to see a three-year-old like being menaced by a Carmody Brack. And be like that sick. And be that ill. Um, yeah. And, and we've talked about this before, how like some of the children's and YA fantasy novels that we love are kind of like unadaptable because you'd have to you then get visuals of like these really small bodies going through like some pretty upsetting stuff yeah um (laughs) so I really easier read than seen I can't remember what it was called sorry but we were watching this it was a horror movie in Spanish and me and Nick were struck uh at the end of it, we're like, I've never seen so much brutal violence visited upon children in like a film before. It's quite shocking and very upsetting. I remember like feeling, on a biological level. No, like it's, totally. Yeah. I remember feeling that way when I first saw Pan's Labyrinth too, where it's mm. like a child protagonist and a yeah. baby um, in this like incredibly violent mm-hmm. and frightening world. Yeah. Love Pan's Labyrinth, but no, it's a great movie. Striking. It's in a lot of GDT's movies. Yeah. There's children in peril. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> so, <laughs> do we ship? <laughs> do we ship? Absolutely. <laughs> He's going to wait. She's going to wait. And then they're going to be together. They're going to be extremely powerful magically. And it's going to be great for both of them emotionally. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> oh, they can have a hot witch on witch relationship. Like, yeah. What's better than I'm that? Here for it. That's why I was bummed that there's no sequel because I would like to read that. They can both be the maidens. Think about it. <laughs> it's a bisexual relationship. Okay? Devil maiden. <laughs> okay. That's wow. That's enough of that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I didn't, I, I had wanted to talk a little bit about, Carmody Brack a little more in the magic section. Um, I, I guess I'll I guess I'll just mention that he was such a horrifying antagonist. He was really scary. He felt so real. And when you're a kid, as infused as I was with Stranger Danger, um, which I've mentioned on the podcast before, Officer McGruff. Ralph McGruff. I was waiting for every adult that I encountered to attempt to kidnap me. So I was just like on the edge <laughs> at all times. Yeah. And the way that there you were, you were very concerned about that. I was. Yeah. Yes. And maybe, maybe I kept us safe. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? You were the real officer McGruff. <laughs> Well, I didn't let you guys talk to anyone. No. Yep. <laughs> Adults. Children were fine. Uh, are they? Some children. <laughs> um, and the way that they're lured into this cute shop with all of the miniatures and the really cool toys. And then the the violence with which he lunges at Jacko to stamp his hand and then Jacko being so bothered by the stamp and it won't wash off. Like the way he's lingering with you. If I had that interaction and he didn't even stamp my hand, but I just like encountered him and it was just a man, not even an energy vampire, I would be like shaken to my core um, for 
days. Yeah, he's very unpleasant. Just really, really scary. And it just made me think of every, like, frightening stranger interaction I've ever had. Um, And he was, yeah, just really well written. Love the way that at the end of the story, he just seems like a predator. Mm -hmm. He is showing up first at Laura's school. Just being like, where does she live? Where does Laura live? And all the students are like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Seems bad. And then he shows up at her house, but she has such power over him at that point that she's not even afraid. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an interesting way that she also even has to step back from becoming cruel because there she has the temptation to just torture him and make his unraveling last as long as possible. Um, And Sori is actually the one who's like, do you really want to be like that? Right. He's basically like, you could become an evil witch. Mm -hmm. And every time someone enacts cruelty, there's the person enacting it and the victim. And like, doesn't the cruelty just flow back into you? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that, that was really interesting. And then he's used as a good kind of like final lesson um, because the real positive thing to do with him is just turn him into leaves. And then, <laughs> then a man will find his suit <laughs> and find take it away. And put his suit on. That was, I liked that, was that a lot. That was such a creepy final detail. <laughs> yeah. And the leaves are kind of like, uh, I think it said that the leaves like whisked a little up behind him in the air, but there was nothing else that Carmody could do. Yeah. Um, he's also just an interesting spirit. They describe him as a limer, um, which we have encountered before, but I can't remember what book. Because typically, I mean, in D&D canon, right. lemures are like uh, kind of mindless servants mm-hmm. of devils that they like are usually people who like they made a bargain with them and then it turned out bad or something like that. Um, But he has much, much more like agency than that. Right. He seems totally independent. He he feels just like an old spirit that's, that's just doing its thing. Which again, reminds me a ton of Sabriel Mm -hmm. because a lot of those spirits were just like damned little, you know, goops. And then Mm -hmm. they like refused to die so hard and just kept doing evil things to cling to life. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, he gives me that kind of vibe. Like maybe he started out that way and then he like managed to, you know, keep going. It's very sinister and he's so much more frightening than if he were explicitly something like a vampire, a more established form um, you know, like if they went in there and he had like little fangs and he was like, oh, <laughs> that's what vampires do. A, a gross man is, is so much more disturbing than like a cool vamp who's hanging out in a shop. <laughs> and there's um, two kinds of vampires. <laughs> I know which one I want to be. And I, yeah, as I said, I implore you to look up all the covers for this book, but there's one that has his stamp on Jacko's hand. Oh my gosh. He just looks like a really funny little bald, severe man who's like, hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll put, I'll put the covers up on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. And I'll probably make a TikTok about them. I think we're gonna, we've been going on for quite a while. So I don't think there really are animals for us to talk about in this book. Not really. So let's go on ahead to pretend food. Pretend food. 
I loved that on the first page, we get Laura like having an identity crisis in the shower when she looks at her shampoo bottle and it has like, it's called like Parisian shampoo or something like that. But then she looks at the back and it says manufactured in New Zealand. (laughs) And she's like, you can't even escape to this like other world because even if it transported you to where it was made, it would just transport me like one town over. (laughs) But while she's using her shampoo, she says, you couldn't really think your way into being another person with a different morning ahead of you or shampoo yourself to a beautiful city full of artists drinking wine and eating pancakes cooked in brandy. (laughs) What is that? (laughs) I, I was in Paris how is, recently. How does a pancake even get cooked in brandy? Because uh, it no. has to fry. You can't have a liquid in the pan. No, man. If you're in Paris, just have grapes. I don't know what this brandy pancakes. Stuff. I don't know. So if you guys want to send me some pancakes cooked in brandy, I'll eat them. We need a P.O. box. <laughs> no matter how poorly they fare on that journey. <laughs> Then we go to their wonderful weekly Thursday night fish and chips. This, if I had a good chip shop near me, I'd be doing this too. Chippy shop. The fish and chips were always bought at Soper's Fish Shop, and sometimes they were lovely and sometimes disappointing, but the uncertainty of which it was going to be was almost adventurous, and the possible loveliness something to be looked forward to. I love that. That's so beautiful. And isn't that just the way with, like, any fry shop? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's sublime. Sometimes it's gross. It's very gross. Yep, I live across from a fried chicken joint, and same deal, same deal. Yes, for sure. Um, it is just the, and, and it really is that spin of the wheel that makes you keep going back for more. Later, Laura makes some dinner for Jacko. Laura scrambled an egg for Jacko and went to extra trouble, dividing his orange into segments for him and cutting his sandwich into four little triangles like those sold in the tea shop three places away from Kate's work. This is how she tries to cheer him up about his stamping. Yeah. Um, And I love the thought of a three-year-old's dinner being a scrambled egg and an orange. (laughs) It's very cute. (laughs) Then later... Laura gets up and finds, quote, an unexpectedly organized breakfast waiting for her. Apple juice, stewed apple and cornflakes, toast, and a cup of tea. I don't know what stewed apple and cornflakes means. Um, I, f- I figure just, like, baked apple. A baked apple separate from cornflakes. cornflakes. Okay. <laughs> Not mixed together. That sounds pretty gross. Because, like I was saying earlier... The disorganization of Kate's home and caretaking is very telegraphed by the food that they eat. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the description of their rushed and awkward supper of canned soup and toast because Kate is trying to get them all fed so that she can go out with Chris Holly. Um, And there is such a palpable feeling when you are a kid and adult is like trying to be finished with you for the day. Yeah. <laughs> like is, can you ever have canned soup for dinner and it not feel awkward? You know, <laughs> there's just like something inherent to the practice of it that it's like, yes, you've put me on canned soup level tonight. <laughs> I see you. I'm canned soup on the tier list. I do like canned soup to be honest. I'm not, saying canned soup can't be quite delicious. But I hear what you're saying. But I'm talking more about the ritual of the thing. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. 
Then when Chris comes over early, Kate says, I can offer you doubtful compensation. Would you like some really terrible sherry? Really terrible sherry. <laughs> and then as they're sipping it, they're like, oh, no. It is really <laughs> terrible. Then later, Chris comes back. And he brings a bottle of lemonade and a bottle of non-symbolic sherry, which he suggested they try to take away the memory of the symbolic sherry drunk earlier. Laura had a little bit in a glass topped up with lemonade, which is very cute. And I'm glad that they include her and they're celebrating. Yeah. And I'm glad he's buying drinks because he appears to have a lot more uh, disposable income. I, yeah, I think so, but doesn't he also, well, he takes leave from work so that he can go fill in at the bookshop for Kate because yep. she's their only employee. Yeah. <laughs> Just amazing stuff. Then we get the switch when she goes to stay with the Carlisles and they begin giving her food. They gave her lemonade, the second glass she had had that night, but this was not fizzy shop lemonade. It was a homemade kind made with real lemons. Indeed, a slice of lemon floated in it like an opaque island. It was in her hands almost before she knew where she was, and a plate with tomatoes sliced over homemade bread was put in the other. So immediately we're getting the signifiers of wealth. Mm -hmm. It's also they have the luxury of having time and capacity and resources to make food themselves. Wealth is time. Yes, that's correct. So they've not only made their own lemonade, they've also made their own bread. And then when she has dinner there, it's described as a proper dinner with thin, clear soup, a salad, a chicken casserole, and even pudding. (laughs) Later, Mrs. Fang Boner, who we haven't mentioned, but is an incredible character. Just just a real jerk who's like constantly judging everyone in the neighborhood and like trying to talk poorly about Kate to Laura. And Laura always like, you know, fights back with some other little quip. Yeah. Um, And she that name, man. People joke that she is a vampire, but it just sounds like she bangs vampires. You're right. Important distinction. <laughs> Mrs. Fangwoner herself had sent grapes to the hospital and very expensive ones too. Sidebar love thinking about what very expensive, expensive grapes means. Grapes. And had telephoned to find out how Jacko was getting on. Kate and Laura had eaten her grapes and now Laura felt that she was not entitled to make fun of her anymore. It's a shame when you're like, you know, quasi enemy does something nice and then you're like, well, shucks. Can't be mean about them anymore. (laughs) Then this incredible monologue from Brack from Carmody when he is describing the exalting joys of possessing a human body and why he doesn't just want to exist as a spirit. To eat a peach picked straight from the tree and warmed by the autumn sun. To bite a crisp apple, the first juice, a revelation. Or to feel the sun on bare skin. Salt! Salt! (laughs) Salt on a fresh laid egg, boiled for four minutes. Or to lick fresh human sweat. Whose sweat is he licking? (laughs) Get away from me. Do not lick me, please, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But... As he was saying that, like, a a very salty, hard-boiled egg is probably one of my greatest comforts on this planet. Yeah, you you like salt. 
I am such a little salt head. I always think of that scene in Mad Men when Sally's grandpa describes himself as having a salt tooth and he puts salt on his ice cream. And I was like, he had some good ideas. (laughs) Gene. (laughs) A horrible man, but he did put salt on things. (laughs) Horrible old man. (sighs) And then at the end of the book, we get some celebratory. um, I, I think They call it champagne, but I think it's actually sparkling apple juice because Chris says champagne or good as and then says, oh, yes, a very good fizzy year on an occasion like this. It's bubbles. We need more than actual wine. Okay, yeah. Um, And then they all like drink it and dance around. And it's really, really sweet because that's the celebration after Jacko is better. After he doesn't die. And then at the very end... Sori says, I was thinking of the pudding we're having for supper. Gooseberry fool. What is gooseberry fool? And he says to Laura that she is reminding him of the pudding. And she says, you think I'm like a pudding? And then he says, it's my favorite pudding. It's creamy and sharp at the same time. Mm. <laughs> you don't want to be creamy and sharp. Romantic. <laughs> I did think that was kind of cute. Um, gooseberry fool is a like stewed fruit with cream dessert with a little elderflower liqueur. All right, that sounds fine. Um, It does sound pretty good. Gooseberries are not native to North America. I don't know if I've had a gooseberry um, when I've been in the UK. Um, They're green. They uh, are like, they're, and they're pretty large. They look kind of grape-like, but yeah. Have to have to seek some out. If you guys want to describe gooseberries to us, you're also more than welcome. I just know gooseberries just makes me think of Yennefer from The Witcher 3 because they say she smells like lilac and gooseberries. Thank you for saying that because I was like, <laughs> why do I feel like I heard gooseberries a million times <laughs> last year? That's why. That's why. <laughs> it was Yen. Still don't know what they smell like, but I imagine they smell good. <laughs> Lilac and gooseberries. <laughs> I'll never be able to mimic him. Geralt. Geralt. <laughs> I find his voice so funny. I just... Ugh, it I is. I love, yeah. it. I love Geralt. Okay. Long episode. I knew it would be. Let's select our badass ladies. I think I know who Madeline's going to pick. My badass lady is Sorry. <laughs> and uh, Sorry the maiden. Yes, the <laughs> maiden. <laughs> and uh, I rate him four exciting years of bird watching. <laughs> <laughs> so exciting, he doesn't think about how he can't have sex with any other people. <laughs> Even though he is a very horny boy. <laughs> Just gonna have to focus really hard on those birds. <laughs> That's why everyone gets into bird watching, right? For celibacy. Yeah, to push away their sexual urges. <laughs> uh, sorry to the bird watching community. I love birds. So just putting that out there. That's not how I use them. No, yeah, we we have uh, our mothers and ardent bird watchers. Hi, mom. Shut up. I, I know you're listening. Shut up, mom. Sorry for the besmirchment. Not casting aspersions. <laughs> I will pick Laura as my badass lady. 
I rate her her own little motorcycle that she can ride around town so that she's not terrified of being attacked by just like a bad dude hiding in the trees and also doesn't always have to be hitching a ride with Sori um, when he drives too fast and scares her. Although he does have a car by the end of the book, so <laughs> he moves up. Yeah, but he's world. leaving, so. Right. Give her a motorcycle. She needs it. Yeah. She definitely has other adventures ahead. And if Carmody Brack just happened to turn up in her town, I wonder who else might appear. Good point. Yeah. And she's going to need a motorcycle yeah. to deal with it. Yeah, I have a feeling she'll be using her new powers for exciting things and not like retreating back into the mundane. I agree. Man. Carmody Brack, great, uh, very niche Halloween costume. Um, I also saw that he's played by the actor who plays Peter Pettigrew in the Harry Potter movies in the adaptation, which I think is great casting. He's very unsettling. Timothy Spall is his name. He's very talented. Um, Yeah, uh, just, you know, plays a gross dude in the movies that most of us know him from. (laughs) But he's in Sweeney Todd, too. Um, Oh, really? And oh, is he like the bro of the of Sasha Barrett Cohen? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I could you guys let us know if you've seen the adaptation? I do have like a project where I try to see everything Melanie Linsky has ever done. I'm not joking. Um, so this this falls in that category. Um, so I'll probably be watching it regardless. But let us know if it's good. It seems to have like pretty good reviews. Okay, that's it. We're done. We've changed over. We've changelinged. <laughs> changelinged. That's a verb. <laughs> I, I, I changed. I changelinged this morning. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recommending this, requesting it. All y'all who did so, really, really delighted to have had this experience. Thank you. Yeah. You can find us on on the internet at dragonbabiespodcast.com I'll put up some of those covers I mentioned we're also on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast and on TikTok at dragonbabiespodcast um, TikTok's pretty anemic at this point but I'm, I'm starting to think about it we're, we're going I'm working on it so there's something happening <laughs> Uh, check out also my Instagram and TikTok where I post my art and you know pictures of my office so that's pretty exciting <laughs> Pig and Doodles, P-I-G, the letter N is in Nancy, D-O-O-D-L-E-S. Nice. And our next episode is going to be a special one on Grendel by John Gardner um, with a special guest, Renee Hansen. Renee. Also known as my mother-in-law, baby. That's right. Continuing the tradition of all of our guests only being those nearest and dearest to us. (laughs) It's a family pod. What do you expect? Friends of the pod. That'll be out soon. Thank you all so much for listening. I forgot to mention, if you want some more goodness, you can join our Patreon for $3 a month. This month's episode is going to be on a YA fantasy romance to get into the valentines of it all. It looks like it's going to be The Changeling by Kristen Kishore. Are you kidding me? We're doing another Changeling book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wait, 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 let me make sure that that... Did you just go on and vote for it a bunch of times? <laughs> 
No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got the name wrong. It's Graceling. It's actually my name. <laughs> you got it wrong and it's your own name. It's going to be, yeah, we, we had a vote on our Patreon. It's going to be Graceling by Kristen Kishores. So you can look forward to that this month. Plus over a year of archived content. So hype, hype. Sign up. Patreon.com backslash Dragon Babies. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>